0: I'm going to do this. I'm going to run for the United States Senate.
1: The time is now for fresh ideas and new leadership. I'm running for student council because of you and for you. That is why I stand before you today to announce my candidacy for president of the United States of America. Welcome to the Arena Talks podcast. This is Ravi Gupta, co-founder of the Arena. Today we talked to Buffy Wicks, who's a candidate for California State Assembly. Uh, In this conversation, Buffy talks about her experience as a senior member of the Obama and Clinton campaigns in the Obama White House. She talks about growing up in California in a trailer park and attending community college. She talks about her experience as a new mom, and she even talks about her experience running an Ironman recently. Uh, This was an enjoyable conversation, so let's just jump right in. Buffy Wicks, welcome to the Arena Talks podcast.
0: Thanks, Ravi. I'm so excited to be here.
1: So, Buffy, I think we first met back in 2007 uh, on the first Obama campaign. I was sent to San Francisco to put on a a big fundraising rally during that summer. I think we were down by like 20 points at the time. And I remember going to the Obama headquarters in California, which is in Oakland. And this is probably the first Obama office ever in Oakland. And... I met you, uh, and you were working in Oakland back then, and it it looks like you're still working in Oakland. So tell us about the California 15th and your many layers of connection to it.
0: Sure. Um, I refer to those times as the glory days Uh, (laughs) because we were – building building a movement to get the first black president elected which was um, something that I will forever and always um, hold very very near and dear to my heart um, and I you know I often think back to, back to that time um, as the field director here for Obama and and working in Oakland and, and California at large um, as some of the most sort of pivotal experiences of my life in terms of really understanding how to build capacity build leadership organize for what you believe in um, work for someone you believe in um, so that that was, that was very exciting times. Um, so yeah, AD 15, Assembly District 15, um, very diverse district, um, uh, very progressive district. You know, I'm born and raised in California. I grew up in a, a little tiny town um, a couple, about two hours from here. Um, no stoplight, 1500 people. Uh, you know, it's near where they discovered gold back in the, back in the day, a little old mining town. Um, and my, my dad worked for the U S Forest Service, um, for 35 years. So we we were stationed in Tahoe National Forest. So there was a little outpost in my little town. Um, you know, and it, it, it's very much sort of, um, Trump's America, where I grew up, very conservative. Um, You know, my brother's gay. And I I remember growing up, um, watching him go through pretty tough times, you know, and being gay in the 80s in in rural America was not an easy thing to do. And I think that's where I got a lot of my sense of sort of justice and fairness and um, equality, I think. Uh, watching my brother go through some of those experiences. Um, and uh, after that, I, I went to I went to community college um, and uh, went to the same community college my mom went to. She was the first in her family to go to school. Um, she went to school when I was a little kid. Um, and then she went to Sacramento State. And so my mom and I are alum of our same little community college uh, <laughs> Um, which which is great, uh, and then I went on to a four year and, and made my way to the Bay Area shortly th- shortly after college, and I started organizing in the anti war movement in in San Francisco, and I was the girl with the bullhorn leading throngs of protesters down the streets, um, leading into the war in Iraq, um, you know, and I really felt that that war was unjustified. Um, And I really felt like we needed a dissenting voice. Um, We needed to show the world that not everyone agreed with President Bush lockstep and that we were all ready to march into war. Um, And I actually, um, during that time, uh, a good friend of mine called me one day when I was driving to work and said, I just tested positive with HIV. Can you come pick me up from the clinic? Um, And I went to the clinic in the mission district and I sat down with him and the nurse and I learned about... T-cell counts and viral loads and things I didn't know that much about. Um, And we got into my car and he turned to me and said, I don't have any health insurance. And this was the week that we started the war in Iraq. And I just felt really angry at the direction the country was going in, um, really frustrated. I felt like, you know, here was my friend who had a college degree from UC Berkeley and a job and didn't have any health insurance. And in his biggest moment of need, he was worried about his insurance and not his health. Um, And, you know, I decided right then and there I wanted a seat at the table or as close to a seat at the table as I could get when our country was making these decisions. And um, that sent me on a path to get much more involved in electoral politics. Um, I worked for Howard Dean after that. I moved to Iowa and organized in Iowa, which was really fun and really learning how to um, build capacity and the va- the, real, the the real value of relationship building and organizing and really building leaders was really important. Um, you know, I then worked for a labor union fighting for better health care and, and wages for Walmart workers. Um, and then I went right into the early days of the Obama campaign. I moved to Chicago in March of 2007 um, and was deployed here as the field director um, in California and went on to, to do a couple other states and was really... Um, honored and privileged to then um, be asked to go serve in the White House, and I was the deputy director of the Office of Public Engagement, where I um, worked on the ACA, Um, and it was really um, emotional for me to work on that um, legislation. Uh, And I'll never forget a Sunday evening in March of 2010, um, sitting in the Roosevelt Room with the president of the United States, the vice president, the senior leadership team, uh, watching those votes come in on C-SPAN. And when the last vote came in, uh, the whole room erupted and we had passed the Affordable Care Act and we knew that um, thirty four million Americans would now have health insurance. Uh, we, I knew that my friend would no longer be considered a pre-existing condition and
1: I really how do you feel, do you feel right now then you know and you know we're talking oh. on a week when the Republicans appear to uh, be working on a self-imposed deadline to repeal by the end of the week.
0: It's it's abhorrent what the Republicans are doing. Um, it's not what this country is about. I'm a firm believer that we are our brother's keeper. Um, I believe everyone should have access to quality and affordable health care. I think we should have Medicare for all. Um, I think we should push for single payer. Um, we're the only industrialized nation not to have that. Um, uh, and it's a real mark on our society, honestly, um, that we have people who um, – don't have access or can't afford it, and that the Republicans are going to to make it worse. I know that we're waiting on the CBO scores, which I think are coming out today, on the Senate bill, but on the House bill, is twenty three million Americans will lose their lose their coverage, you know. And this is basically shifting uh, wealth to rich people, is what we're doing here. Is the plain and simple dirty truth about it. Um, and it's just my hope is that Republicans will pay for this in November of next year. Um, and my my other hope is that in places like California, um, we can lead the way in um, actually advancing progressive public policy like single payer, like Medicare for all, or at least a public option um, that will ensure that that at least the citizens of California will be protected um, against the Trump administration. Um, And that's, you know, really one of the reasons why I'm running is I think we have the opportunity here in California to lead the way on bold progressive public policy. Um, And I think the seat that I'm in is very progressive. And so I think Um, whoever is lucky enough to win this race and govern in in Sacramento um, should lead with the progressive public policy agenda and should lead the way in California to um, uh, build the necessary alliances and coalitions to to pass progressive public policy that help people and and policies that are responsible um, uh, fiscally as well. Um, And I think there's a way to do all of that. I really firmly believe that. And I think part of my experience of working on the ACA Um, taught me that, you know, that, you know, the ACA was not and is not a perfect piece of law. <laughs> um, and if we were going to redraw the entire healthcare system from scratch, we would do it a very different way, I think. Or at least I would. <laughs> um, but it it helped move the needle significantly. Um, and we were able to put together a coalition to pass that um, through a lot of ups and downs. And I think my experience um, working on that bill um, for the president, I think has really taught me the ability to do that. And that's exactly what I want to do in Sacramento. Um, and like I said, I think California, if you look at what's happening in California, you know, when 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 Trump pulled out of the the Paris Climate Accords, Jerry Brown, working with other governors um, in other states, is basically leading the way, saying, we're not going to actually pull out. California is committed to it. Other states are committed to it. So while Trump is doing what he's doing, we are going to double down on our commitment. Um, And I think we can see that, um, you know, Jerry Brown and the leadership in Sacramento have the ability to do that, not only on climate, but on health care and many other progressive issues. And that's exactly what I hope that we can do.
1: And so taking a step back, you talked about growing up in a small town and growing up at a trailer. What uh, You talked about your brother influencing uh, your passion for politics and organizing. How about your parents? How did they influence your passion? My,
0: my parents definitely were very influential on me. Um, my mom uh, was and still is the sort of default community organizer um, in the community. She was like, You know, head of my swim team and she was organizing all different kinds of things. She always had like, you know, a clipboard in her hands. She was organizing the 4th of July, 4th of July parade. Um, you know, she was very engaged, um, in, in a lot of the sort of community events and not in a political way, but in a community oriented way. So I think I got a lot of value from her, you know, as I started getting more involved in politics. You know, in college and after college and obviously in my career, um, she became more political as well. She was one of my volunteers when I was a field director um, uh, in California for Obama. Um, she was one of my neighborhood team leaders, <laughs> um, which was great. And she would, you know, her and her, her and her, you know. Uh, wacky band of activists in our little conservative town um, would call me and and be like, Buffy, the voter file is not working. Like, yeah, we really need you to get on this. You know, I was like, mom, can you go through your organizer? You know, uh, but no, she would just call me directly. She could just go around the the, the powers that be. Um, but uh, she was great and continues to be very actively involved. And like I said, has gotten more political. She's appalled at what Trump is doing. Um, and my dad is like this strange mix of, um, Uh, he, he, he doesn't make sense politically. So he is a, belongs to the NRA. He's a card carrying NRA member, drives a a Chevy pickup, drinks his beer. You know, he's like a dude, uh, worked for the forest service for a long time and yet is a total feminist. Um, you know, I, I remember in 1992, it was year of year of the woman, uh, here in California. Um, it was the election of Barbara Boxer. And, um, uh, I remember he told me I was in high school at the time and he said, I just voted straight up another ticket for women. I think women can govern better. And he just voted every woman up and down the ballot. And I was like, wow, dad. And he's always just been so supportive of me and um, just really proud of me. And, and you know, even though our, uh, our politics maybe don't align on the gun issue, um, he's just been very incredibly supportive. Although I will say he supports background checks and he thinks it's stupid that we don't have them. And he thinks everyone should have background checks. So as do most gun owners, by the way. Um, so th- you know, they have very interesting politics.
1: And so you worked for uh, for Howard Dean and then Obama, and there seems to be a uh, there seemed to be a strong connection between those two campaigns. Not only the anti-war theme which you've talked about, but just the idea of taking on the establishment of the Democratic Party. Uh, tell us what you and some of the other Dean folks learned on that first campaign that you applied to the strategy that help Obama get elected?
0: You know, there were a lot of people that worked on the Dean campaign that, that then went on to be serving in leadership roles on the Obama campaign. Um, you know, myself, Ben LaBolt, Jeremy Byrd, um, a bunch of us, um, I think, had a lot of hard lessons learned. Um, you know, I really learned a lot in losing. Um, and in fact, this past November, I drew upon those lessons really Um really, uh, intimately in a way, you know, I just remember the feeling, um, this past November of, oh my God, like the sky is falling. And then remembered back to 2004 when we had lost on the Dean campaign, lost on the Kerry campaign. Um, and what came of those losses was the Barack Obama campaign. Um, and without the losses of Al Gore and the loss of Dean and Kerry, uh, we wouldn't have had Barack Obama. Um, so I look today to see, um, I'm very hopeful about the future of the party and the future of the country. In that, I think that we are going to see a resurgence of um, civic engagement, of leadership, of people really taking their government seriously, of young progressives who want to stand up and answer the call to service and run and be engaged and advocate and agitate. And it's really, really exciting. Um, so I think you learned a lot in terms of the loss, which I think is really, really important. But going back more specifically to your question, you know, uh, working for Howard Dean, you know, a lot of what we were doing on the Dean campaign, we felt this energy and enthusiasm. We felt this surge of momentum. Um, and ultimately like it just didn't really translate on the ground to actual victory. You know, I was in the room the night of the scream speech in Iowa and, um, you know, what people forget is we lost by 18 points that night before the your, scream your, your speech ears happened.
1: Have, Your ears have recovered. <laughs>
0: yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, the funny thing is, is when you were in the room,
1: you, you could not hear it, right? Yeah, it I, could, I mic, literally right? couldn't hear him. Yeah. Like
0: the audience was so loud that you couldn't hear him. So he was like screaming to, so the audience could hear him. Um, so, uh, so, you know, we lost by 18 points and that wasn't, um, there was nothing we could do about that on the field program. You know, field programs aren't responsible for eighteen point losses. It's just that the electorate had fundamentally shifted in the weeks leading up to the, the caucus, and the organizers could could feel it. You know, and I had um, I had uh, precinct captains who were coming to me and saying, "Listen, I'm really worried. Um, I'm starting to lose volunteers. Um, you know, people are are going another way." And when you're in the Iowa caucus, it's you you know who your people are, right? I mean, everything is very meticulously records are meticulously kept in terms of who's supporting whom and whatnot. And in the end of the day, my precinct captains, who some of whom were wavering on their support because they could feel everything bottom out, they stood with me because of their relationship with me. And a lot of our precinct captains stood with our organizers because of the relationships they'd built with the organizers. And I really understood the value of relationship building when it comes to politics, uh, which I think is something we sort of forget um, when you're just being uh, hit with this onslaught of negative TV ads and direct mail pieces. Um, so I want to build a campaign here in California when I as, as I run for assembly that is built on community organizing tactics and strategies, that is built on relationship building, that is built on on really having long-form dialogue with voters about issues they care about. And I learned a lot of that on the Dean campaign. And I learned that through loss. And I also learned the importance of that through victory in the Obama campaign.
1: And so on the flip side, you know, you, you worked on two insurgent candidates that took on the establishment. And then during this last campaign, you went to go work for uh, Hillary in California. And, you know, it's got to be an interesting dynamic in California as it is around the country. I know in the arena community, um, we've done a lot of work just to get folks from different sides of that primary talking to each other. Um, how much do folks in your district identify you as the insurgent taking on the establishment versus the person who uh, helped Hillary's campaign in that district?
0: Well, I am both of those things, you know, um, uh, and we'll see what the electorate ultimately thinks about that. <laughs> um, you know, I decided to work for Hillary for a couple reasons. Um, one, You know, I was pregnant with my daughter at the time and I was really excited about the opportunity to bring my child into the world, um, in an environment where we had a strong woman leader, um that means a lot to me emotionally. Um, and for her to grow up in a society where, um, a woman's running the show, um, was really, really appealing to me. Um, and it still is, you know, and I hope that one day it's funny. I, I say, I I want my daughter to be, uh, the third or maybe fourth woman president, (laughs) you know, like that we'll have so many women presidents by the time she's able to be president that like, it'll be like, yeah, she's the third or fourth, you know, no pressure, Jojo, no pressure. Um, Uh, you know, and that to me is, you know, we have not broken that last, you know, uh, glass ceiling. And, and I hope that we do. And, you know, the other piece of this is, is I really um, worked for her because I wanted to protect the president's legacy. Um, and we see that it's obviously potentially being dismantled now. Um, and I thought that Hillary would be able to do that. Um, and so, you know, those are the reasons why I worked for her. The, the truth of the matter is she won this district. Um, this is a very progressive district. Um, Berkeley's in my district, Oakland, Richmond, other areas, um, very progressive. And Hillary won the district. Um, so I do think that, you know, my hope is that we'll see uh, as we move forward, um, the, the the sort of Bernie and Hillary factions really becoming one. I am incredibly thankful and grateful for what Bernie Sanders has done to the activist base in this country um, and the new voices and people he has brought into the fold. Um, I think it's incredibly important um, and it's, it's awe-inspiring. And I think that um, we have to um, unify and figure out a way to move forward. And my hope is that that is what is happening because the truth of the matter is um, we're not each other's enemy. <laughs> um, we're dealing with much bigger problems here in terms of what what Trump is doing.
1: And so you know you have a you have a, a daughter who's due on election day. Uh, shortly after that, um, she comes into this world. Walk us through that uh, period of time and how you went from obviously the incredible disappointment you felt, and then also just what must have been. Uh, such an important, amazing, positive experience in bringing your daughter into this world and then deciding, hey, like, it's time for me to step into the arena in a, in a totally different way just a few months later.
0: Yeah. So, um, not the best timing to decide to run for office when you have, um, a daughter under the age of one, but you know, (laughs) sometimes you can't figure out, uh, that, you know, sometimes you can't decide when, when the timing is, you know, um, Jojo was, was due on election day. As you said, um, she decided to come on Thanksgiving. Um, and I call that her first act of civil disobedience. (laughs) I'm really glad she did not come on election day. Um, she came after a three day labor. Uh, so it was a very long and arduous process, but she arrived and, you know, fortunately for me, you know, with her, I just basically went underground um, uh, and it was really hard to watch the news to, re- like, I couldn't read my Twitter feed. I couldn't go on social media. I couldn't, I, I just stopped kind of engaging politically and, and, and obviously in part because it was really difficult what was going on, but also I had my daughter with me and I was feeding her every two and a half hours, you know, and was really focused on being a mom for her. Um, and you know, this seat opened up and it sort of really crystallized to me, um, after I kind of came out of that, um, sort of cocoon moment, um, of those first sort of couple weeks to couple months, uh, when the seat opened, um, where I realized that one, that the president's legacy was at stake, um, and everything that we'd worked so hard for, um, you know, that there were many people in our country, um, mostly black and brown people who were going to be experiencing this political context in a very different way, um, in a much more harmful way. Um, you know, that the, the racism and the misogyny that, uh, president Trump espouses on a pretty daily basis, um, is unacceptable. Um, and, uh, that I could do something about it you know, plain and simple. And so I decided to jump into this race. And is it the the best timing given that I have a, you know, seven month old daughter? Not really. Um, but I really care about the community that she grows up in, um, both her immediate community and then the country that she grows up in, um, I think is important. I think, you know, history will look back on this time. Um, I think, and look at those who did and who didn't kind of stand up and whether that means standing up and running for office or standing up and um, voicing your dissent, um, standing up and, you know, organizing the sort of civil disobedience and protests and demonstrations, um, advocating expressly to your members of Congress. um, We need to all be doing that right now. And I felt for me, this was a way in which that I could do that, where I could have the most impact sort of leveraging my knowledge, relationships, know-how, um, into running for office, to me, it just felt like the right time to do it, and I felt honestly a moral imperative to do it.
1: And you know, childcare uh, for you has become more than just a personal issue. Now you've you've now created a, a platform around this to talk about you know gender disparities. Talk a little bit more about that. Like, what do you what are you seeing out there in the district in California in the country? Um and how is that, you know, jiving with your experience both at, both as a mother but as a candidate looking at the policies that you want to change?
0: So I, I think we are increasingly saying a society of the haves and the have nots. Um, It looks like an hourglass, you know, with not a lot in the middle. Um, And we are on this slow march towards have and have nots. And I think, you know, as someone who grew up in a trailer and went to community college um, and was able to kind of make my way out of a pretty working class environment um, and become middle class and ultimately, you know, work in the White House and be able to achieve my dreams, I was able to do that because I had a ladder up. Um, I had good teachers, I had a community college, I had student loans, I had all these things at my disposal that enabled me to do that. And so um, we need to figure out policies like that, that help people um, get ahead and not just kind of stay where they are, right? Um, And if you look at um, what's happening economically in, in the East Bay, and I think in a lot of other places, you know, the cost of housing here is insane, Um, It's very, very expensive. So if you're trying to afford um, a mortgage, um, you're trying to afford um, childcare costs. If you're paying... $1,500, dollars $3,000 a month for childcare costs, depending on, um, what you're doing. That is a lot of money. Um, you know, if you don't even have a paid leave policy when you become pregnant and you have to go back to work two weeks after having a baby, um, because you can't afford to take any more time off, um, that is a really challenging environment. And you look at women who work, um, in the service industry, only 6% have some sort of, um, paid leave. Um, I think that paid leave policies combined with childcare, um, are really the levers that we can pull in our society that will make it a more of a level playing field for women. I mean, when when you look at the pay disparity, um, the biggest factor there is is women with children. Um, You know, physically, you have to have the child. You need time with the child. Um, And uh, then, you know, a lot of women are forced with the situation. If they go back to work, um, they're putting all of their money into childcare costs. So a lot of them stay out of the workforce in order to raise their children. Um, and obviously, if a woman is choosing to do that, I completely respect that. But it should not be, um, you know, solely because it's a financial decision. Um, and so, you know, part of the problem is, is, is the cost of all of this and the cost of living associated with the cost of childcare um, and paid leave policies that, quite frankly, are not very good. Um, and so this is, these are some of the things I really want to work on in Sacramento.
1: And so something else that you've worked on is the California Kids Campaign. Uh, tell us about that.
0: Yeah. So I uh, when I moved back um, to California about a year and a half ago, I started working with Common Sense Media, um, building out a children's advocacy program. Um, we are advocating for a whole suite of issues. You know, California actually ranks 47th out of 50th in terms of standard of living for children. Um, it is, the, the stats are even worse, um, for, for children of color. Um, and we are quite frankly, leaving our children behind. They are not a political priority in Sacramento in part because kids don't have super PACs. They don't have lobbyists, um, and they're our most vulnerable in society, and we are not uh, prioritizing them. Um, in this state, 75% of the kids don't get the important health screenings they need. Over 1 million don't have access to licensed child care. One in four kids in California don't get enough to eat you know, and this is the sixth largest economy in the world. Um, so our goal, uh, is to really build the political will in order to change that. Um, so we were doing that a number of different ways. And a lot of it goes back to my organizing days. We have parent organizers across the state organizing in different assembly districts, uh, and Senate districts, um, to advocate for public policies that, that help kids, um, including, you know, investments in early childhood, K through 12 education, et cetera. So that's been a really, um, not only fun thing for me to work on, but, um, all the more critical, um, especially now as a new mom, understanding, um, the importance of this. And, you know, my hope is that, um, coming out of this program, we have, you know, parent organizers who are very engaged. Um, um, we do a lot of training with them. Uh, and my hope is some of them will run for office one day. Um, and we'll have advocates in Sacramento who come from these communities and who can advocate on behalf of their kids.
1: And so, uh, Totally changes the subject here, but you know one thing I'm passionate about, and I share another passion that you and I share is, is fitness. Uh, you are um, a little bit of a fitness fanatic. You did what they call an Ironman, or I guess we can call it Iron Woman. What is that?
0: Oh my God! Yes, I actually did that two months before I got pregnant. Um, uh, I did a full Ironman. It is a um, 2.4 mile ocean swim followed by a 112 mile bike ride topped off with a 26.2 mile marathon all in one day. And you have to do it in under 17 hours. Uh, so <laughs> I, I trained for a year. It was funny. I found a coach. I decided I wanted to do an Ironman. I had never done a triathlon before in my entire life. Um, and about a year out, I met with my co- this coach who I had you know, was introduced to by a friend and said, I really want to do an Ironman. And she was like, well, maybe you should start off with a triathlon, like a, you know, sprint distance or Olympic distance. I said, that's great. Like, I'm happy to do all those things, but I'm, I'm going to do an Ironman. She was like, well, let's just take it one step at a time. I was like, well, like, I don't think you understand. Like I've made this decision, like I'm doing this. Um, so I trained for about a year, um, and." I I did it, you know, and it's, it was not easy, but I have to say, you know, putting in the time, dedication and training, it wasn't as bad as it sounds. I will say there was a part going when you get off the bike and it's like, you know, Four o'clock in the afternoon, you know, it's hot and humid, and you get off this bike, you just rode 112 miles, so your body's in this, been in this crunched up position, your legs are like jello, and then you realize, I've got to go run a marathon now, is not the most appealing place to be. <laughs> but, uh-huh. But, you know, you walk through that first mile and then you start running and, and you go. And it was great. It was one of the best experiences. I will say my coach was – she was like, you did such a great job. Like I think you're going to be one of those people that really gets into this and you're going to you know, become addicted to Ironman uh, – doing an Ironman triathlon. Uh, that is not the case. I was <laughs> so happy, happy to do one, uh, one and done. So.
1: <laughs> well, I do think that it's fitting because, you know, some someday, uh, like over a year from now, you're going to come out of this primary – uh, victorious, I have every expectation, and you're going to turn around and, you know, as you explained to me the other day, you have to turn around and run against, uh, if you're in the top two, the other sec- the other first or second place finisher. So you're going to basically metaphorically get off that bike and have to start running again. That's right exactly right. <laughs> That's exactly right. Yeah. <laughs> um, so in closing, we have a few questions we ask everybody, um, and you try to keep them as short as you can, but some of these questions probably require some explanation. Sure. Uh, so I'm going to fire these away at you. The first one is, what's one view that you hold that isn't widely popular, and you think may even cause you some votes, but you just believe it anyway, and you're just you're not going to budge on it?
0: Well, I think um, it's more of a philosophy, I think. You know, this district's very progressive. We'll have a lot of very progressive candidates. You know, And so I think the what could happen in this race is it's just a laundry list of who's the most progressive and who checks all these boxes. Um, that's a very boring conversation to me. What I want to have a conversation about is big ideas that move the needle for people's lives. Um, and how can we do that? And how can we um, actually move public policy? Um, so it's a little bit of a different frame. And so, um, you know, I may take some slack on that, um, uh, that I'm not just going to sit there and like laundry list every sort of progressive, you know, uh, idea known to mankind, but I, I want to come up with interesting, bold public policy ideas that help, uh, increase affordable housing, um, that help, you know, working class families here. Um, I went to community college, so I've got a lot of ideas around what community colleges can be. Um, and so, you know, I think I'm not going to run as just this sort of, um, I'm the most leftist in the world. Please vote for me candidate. I'm going to run as someone who can actually get stuff done in Sacramento coming from a progressive ideology.
1: Awesome. Uh, Second question, kind of related, um, what's an issue that you're obsessed with that doesn't get enough attention in Sacramento, including, you think, with even within the Democratic Party?
0: You know, I think we've seen more recent attention to the slate of women's issues I, I discussed, um, but there isn't the political will in Sacramento to actually deal with it, you know. Um, I think part of the problem is Sacramento is in a 20-year low in terms of women um, representation. There's currently uh, 22% of the state legislature is women. Um, Only 5% of the state legislature is women with younger children. Um, And so the The views of um, mine that you know, paid leave is important. That um, affordable childcare is important. Um, that paid sick days is important. I just don't think are as widely held. Or maybe people agree with that, but they're not really doing anything about it. And so, um, that's some of the, those are some of the things I want to really drive when I'm in Sacramento.
1: Awesome. And last question is: If all goes right next time around, you're the incumbent running for re-election. You know, what do you think your message of that will be in that campaign? Like, what do you think will be your highlights of that first term in office?
0: My hope is that I will be seen as someone who has moved the needle on policy um, and has been able to work in coalition uh, with other folks in Sacramento around um, the suite of women's uh, economic issues. Um, that I've been able to move the needle on affordable housing policy, um, that I've been able to move the needle on um, uh, fixing some of our transportation problems. Um, we are in a really interesting time, I think, in the Bay Area right now where there's an enormous amount of wealth, but there's also an enormous amount of of poverty. Um, And I will be seen as someone who really has come up with interesting and clever ways to address um, the disparity that's existing in our society um, in a way that works for everyone.
1: Awesome. And uh, how can folks get involved in your campaign, whether uh, if they're in the Bay Area or outside of the Bay Area?
0: So – please go to buffywicks.com, um, B-U-F-F-Y-W-I-C-K-S.com. Uh, it is my real name. I lead with that because everyone always asks me that question. Um, that might be a political liability for me. Yeah. Um, but I am who look, I am. You hate, know, you got to own we, it.
1: Look, we helped a guy named Barack Hussein Obama. Exactly. Like
0: <laughs> that was actually one of the first things that he and I ever spoke about was um, our names. So... <laughs> um, <laughs> So, right, exactly. So, yeah, just go to my website. Um, Obviously, I'm up against a crunch of a fundraising deadline for June 30th, uh, which, as folks know, um, this first reporting is really important. All the political elite and reporters and folks will be looking to see if I'm a viable candidate based on my ability to raise money, which, unfortunately, that is just the way this game is played. So a contribution would be great. Um, But also, if you're in the Bay Area or know folks in the Bay Area, I'm building a massive grassroots campaign. I need all the volunteers I can get and appreciate folks' time, energy, and money.
1: Well, awesome. Well, Buffy, we're going to make it as easy as possible for folks. We'll, we'll put a link in the profile for this podcast and the spotlight on our website so folks can re- readily access it. But beyond that, I just want to say thank you very much. I've enjoyed this conversation, and we're going to be rooting for you out there.
0: Thanks, Robbie. We really appreciate it and love what you guys are doing.